if you weren't here last Sunday, um, I didn't go stealing road signs. Um, they're on loan to us from the, the city street department, and they're an illustration of a series that we are in this summer to kind of show us what it is to live in the will of God. Um, you know, trying to think of, of really how to explain it. We, we talked so much about this last week, but let me just kind of recap that. Um, you know, sometimes we, we get in this mindset that the will of God in our lives is just going to be automatic, that it's just going to happen. And let me liken it to a car, okay? Salvation is like a car. It's like God saying, here's your vehicle, everything you need for life and godliness, everything you need to get where you need to go in me, here it is. Now, how many of us today are going to go outside and get into that vehicle and just sit there and wait for it to take us where we're going to go? We're not. We're going to turn the key. We're going to put it in gear. We're going to take the steps that we have been taught, either through driver's ed, maybe our fathers taught us how to drive, but we're going to do that. And here's the thing. It's not my strength that powered that car. There's an engine that I have no idea how it works. There's gasoline in that car, but I still had to turn the key. That car will take me nowhere. And for so many Christians, we're sitting in a car, we're saved, we're not going anywhere. Because we're not, we haven't turned the ignition, we're not putting it in gear, we're not, step, we're not taking what we've been taught and putting it into practice. And that's the essence of this. We pay more attention to our road signs and vacations than we do the will of God for our lives. And it's not gonna just happen automatically. I know there's a scripture that says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But Jesus taught his disciples in John chapter 13, <clears throat> you know, I am your Lord and master and I've washed your feet. You should do the same thing for one another. Wash each other's feet you are blessed, not if you know these facts, but what does he say? You're gonna be blessed if you do them. See, when Jesus says you're gonna know the truth and the truth is gonna set you free, it's like he says you're gonna take driver's ed and driver's ed is gonna make you free. Can I get a witness from like a 15 or 16 year old? I mean, driver's ed and a driver's license sets you free. But you know what? You don't get in the car and go, I have a license. I know the truth. I know what to do. You put the truth into practice and you turn the key. You put it in gear. You step on the accelerator. First, you observe traffic. And then you step on the accelerator. Does that make sense? And that's how we live in the will of God. Romans chapter 12, this is where we've been uh, last week and this is where we'll be again this week. And I encouraged you last week to read this week, Romans 12, 13, and 14. And every week this summer, we need to read these three chapters every week to kind of prepare our hearts for what God wants to say, what God wants to do, to kind of remind us of these things. Because living in the will of God is not automatic. Romans 12 starts with, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
It's not that God's gonna renew your mind. He showed you how to renew your mind. Renew your mind. Offer your body to him as a living sacrifice. It's not just I'm gonna sit in the car, but I'm gonna do what he's told me to do. And as I drive down the road, I'm gonna pay attention to the signs he's put everywhere. I mean, if I run that stop sign, there's a price to pay. Now, when that cop pulls me over, I could say, I'm sorry, I don't believe in legalism. He's still gonna write me a ticket. And God's word says, here, I have mapped out for you life and death. Choose life, choose life. If you choose death, there's gonna be consequences, but you're, you know, you're still in the car. You're still in the car. Okay, your salvation, I'm not taking the car away. Now, sometimes the car gets taken away. Or sometimes we mess up the car so bad that it's like, oh, boom, it's totaled. But you know what? The thing about the Lord is he can take everything and just make it new. If we ask him, if we repent, And that's what this series is all about. It's about learning to live in the will of God. And he tells us in Romans 12, one and two, to do these steps, and as we do these steps, not just one time, but as we continue to do these things, as we continue to renew our minds, as we continue to offer our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, as we continue to be transformed, we will know God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. He's gonna give us the best route to take. He's gonna be our GPS, if you will. He's gonna tell us how to get to point B from point A. And that's what this has been all about. Last week, we talked about not driving drowsy from Romans chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. It's time to be awake. It's time to be fully engaged. It's not just about attending a church service. You can sit in this pew today and leave here and not be changed one bit. Just showing up in a building is not enough. We've gotta be engaged with the Lord. We've gotta say, God, change my life, change my heart. Just letting my words go in and out of your ears today is not gonna transform you. It's as you allow the Holy Spirit to take the word of God and transform you and change you and you sit there and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to change as a result of this word? And there's gonna be at least one thing that every one of us in the room are gonna need to change today as a result of what he says. And as we do that, it's like we're paying attention to the road signs along the path. And that's how we live in the will of God. But it's not going to happen just automatically. And so today, we're going to say, stay in debt. Now, before you Dave Ramsey fans stone me, let me explain. Stay in debt. If you've got your Bible, go to Romans chapter 13. That's where we're gonna be today. We're not taking these chapters in order. I mentioned that last week. We're gonna hit a lot of Romans 12, 13, and 14, but uh, we're gonna kind of go as, as I feel led to take them. And so um, Americans are notorious for overspending on our vacations. And so we're going into the summertime. We're using the theme of summer and vacations and travel. And uh, we joke often about, I need to get back to work now to pay for my vacation. Uh, That's kind of what we do. And one of the culprits of that is credit cards. Now, when we travel, it's convenient to use a credit card. Because, you know, cash can get stolen. It can get lost. But some of you, you know, you're like, I, am, I only travel with cash. I do not use credit cards. And that's good. But 
some of us do because it's easier, you know, if you have a fraudulent charge, your credit card company is supposed to protect you, you're supposed to be able to pay it off. But the problem with the credit card is we don't pay attention. When you use cash and you've got it in your wallet, there's a limited supply. Anyone got an unlimited supply of cash in your wallet? Just checking. There's a limited supply. And so when you're paying for things, you open that wallet and you're like, hmm, do I really need that? Because there's a, it's going to end. But when you're playing with plastic, you don't even think about it. You just, you get everything you want and, you know, supersize it. Yep, go ahead. But if you got the cash, you pay attention more. Okay. So whether credit cards are good or bad doesn't really matter. Uh, there is a good debt. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13, I want you to stay in debt. And on the road to finding God's will, there's a debt that we have that we're never going to pay off. In fact, we're going to continue to make payments on it, but it's never going to change the debt. Credit card companies, as a result of this new law that we've passed, have to tell you on your statement, if you make the minimum payment, this is how long you're going to pay, and this is how much you're going to pay. I don't know if you've seen that on your credit card statement. That's a law. They don't do that out of the goodness of their hearts. They do that because now the government has forced them to. Whether you think the government should force them to do it or not is beyond me, but here's the thing. You pay attention to that. If I make the minimum payment, it's going to take me how long? It's, it's, it kind of opens your eyes to it, if you will. And how many of you, if you just you know, made a payment and then the next month your balance was exactly the same, would just be like, all right, no big deal. You'd pick up the phone, you'd be like, hey, I paid this. But Paul says, you're going to continue to pay on this debt, but it'll never change at all. You're always going to be in debt. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Let's look at it. Romans chapter 13. We're going to just look at three verses. We're going to start in verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill the requirement of God's law. For the commandments say, you must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not covet. These and other such commandments are summed up in this one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to others. So love fulfills the requirements of God's law. And so Father, we ask today to, again, by your spirit, that you would help us to hear your word and help us to put it into practice today, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, owe nothing to anyone. He has just finished teaching on being submitted to government leaders. That as believers, okay, we can submit ourselves to the authority of uh, uh, the government around us. We can do that. Now, we know from scripture, if the government tells us to disregard the law of God, that we can't do that. We can still honor our authorities because the Bible tells us to do that, but we don't have to obey them. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a great example of that. They could not obey the king's decree to bow down to another god because they, they only serve one god. But they said, your majesty, we cannot bow down before your god. They didn't get sarcastic and rude and dishonoring toward Nebuchadnezzar. They honored him. In fact, when they honored him, Nebuchadnezzar got into such a rage that he ordered the furnace 10 times hotter. But can I tell you that his rage did nothing to them. Not even the hair on their head was singed. They didn't even smell like smoke when they came out of the fiery furnace. Uh, we think if we don't dishonor or you know, stand up for ourselves against the, the rotten government that, you know, that, we, that, the, that the God we serve isn't able to help us, 
He's able to help us. All through scripture, God intervenes in the lives of people that look to him. You want to take matters into your own hands? He'll let you. But if you want to put matters into his hands and say, God, I won't fight for myself. You fight for me. He'll step in and he'll do that. That doesn't mean that we won't face shipwreck. It doesn't mean that we won't get flogged. It doesn't mean that we won't get beaten. The apostle Paul faced all of that. This idea that if I just serve Jesus, everything's gonna be great is not the scripture. In fact, when you serve Jesus, it's gonna get harder and hotter, maybe even 10 times hotter. But you're gonna walk through fire that's not gonna burn you and you're gonna walk through water that's not going to drown you. And so in the midst of this, this idea of paying taxes, it's okay to pay your taxes, Paul says, because you're paying God's servants. The president of our United States is God's servant. Because there's no authority that comes up or goes down without his knowledge. Now, that servant might be used to punish He could raise up a wicked king to give you what you deserve as a nation. That's possible, but it's still his servant. Pharaoh was God's servant. All throughout scripture, this is what we're taught. So he says this, in the midst of all of this now, (coughs) excuse me, he makes this universal statement. Give to everyone what you owe them. Give to everyone Excuse me, what you owe them. Now, it may seem like he's discouraging any type of debt. Don't, don't have debt, don't owe anyone anything. But the Proverbs do teach us that the borrower is subject to the lender. So the Bible does teach us that debt is a bad idea, that it's not a good stewardship principle. It also teaches us that if we lend money to our brother, that we should not charge them interest. So, you know, both of them are in the scripture. We should be able to lend freely, but it also says if you lend to your brother, don't expect it back. Lend as if you're giving it, okay? I mean, you could set up a payment plan, but, you know, if you lend money to somebody, don't ever expect to get it back. And if you get it back, then it's just a bonus. But if you don't get it back, then you're not gonna carry a grudge to your grave. How many of you have ruined relationships because you co-signed alone with someone or you lent them money and didn't get it back. So Paul is not necessarily saying uh, don't owe anybody anything because we owe all kinds of people. How many of you owe Northwestern? How many of you owe Midcontinent? How many of you owe the bank for your house or your car? I mean, we owe people money. They do services for us. I mean, if Herb Hofer comes by this week and he gets a stump out of your yard for you, you, you'll owe him. You, you know, you owe the, the person that helped you or worked around your house. If you get water in the basement, you call the cleaning company, you owe them money. All Paul is saying is pay your bills. Owe money, pay it. If you have a debt, don't write it off. Don't just pretend you're not gonna pay it. Don't just say, well, the service wasn't really good, so I'm not gonna pay. Pay for what you owe. Except, except one thing. The continuing debt to love others. Now, he's not saying don't make payments on this debt. He's saying we have a continuing debt to love one another, make payments on it, but you're never going to reduce that debt. We understand the debt we owe to the Lord. 
Perfect son of God comes to earth, gives his life for us, takes our penalty, dies, goes to heaven. Not one of us in this room are not, we don't, I understand, I owe you a debt. And I'm never gonna be able to pay that. But when it comes to people, we're like, what do I owe them? What do I owe people? I don't owe you anything. You didn't do anything for me. I don't owe you nothing. That's how the human mindset works. But here's what God says. I know we like to say, Jesus would have died if it was only you. Maybe a true statement, but here's the thing. It's not. It's not only me. He died for everyone. And so he has taken the debt I owed him, and he's placed it on every human being. Now the debt I owe to him gets paid to people. And if I mistreat you, I'm not paying my debt to him. There are so many scriptures that illustrate this, and we're going to get to as many of them as time will allow. But we get in this mindset that all I got to do is pay my debt to him. And how I treat people, especially people that mistreat me, I can do whatever I want to do. But in essence, he says, here you go. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? You know, we're not the first ones to ask that question. Somebody asked Jesus that question, and he answered it. He told the story. In Luke chapter 10, he tells the story of the good Samaritan. Now, you got to understand something. To Jews, that's an oxymoron. There's not a good Samaritan, okay? Samaritans were despised. They didn't like them. They were lower class. They were a mixed breed, if you will. They intermingled. They were Jews that were left behind at the exile, intermingling, intermarrying with pagans, Okay, so the race is not pure and the, 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 the culture is not pure and they're unholy. Jews would not even walk in Samaria. They didn't want the dirty dust of Samaria on their feet. They'd go all the way around to get to Jerusalem if they were from Galilee in the north. So Jesus tells a story and he takes the Samaritan and makes him the good guy in the story. He takes the Levite and the priest. They walk by the guy that's beat up and they don't help him at all. The Samaritan, he stops and he helps this guy and he takes him to a motel. After he bandages him up, takes care of his wounds, he leaves him there and he says, whatever he owes, I'm gonna pay it. When I come back through, you put it on my account and I'm gonna pay this for him. That's the story of the good Samaritan. That's to teach us something. Who is my neighbor? That's what they asked. Jesus says, your neighbor is who you don't want it to be. <laughs> That's what he said right there. It's, it's who you don't want it to be. The, the gospel is not go love somebody, it's go love everybody. In fact, the, the most unlovable is the true test of whether we've received the gospel. Everybody loves people that are lovable, that's just okay. But you want the true test, look what Jesus says. The law says love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So in that way, you're acting as true children of your Father in heaven. Why? Because you were his enemy. How did he treat you? I know you think that maybe you weren't as bad of an enemy to him as so-and-so is to you. But here's the thing. We were, we were the epitome of that and more. There is no debt that any human being owes me that is even close to the comparison of the debt that I owe him. And so he says, if I'm going to act like him, because I'm his child, and our children are a spitting image of us, parents, those of you that thought maybe the way your child acted was some other reason, <laughs> they act just like us, they pick up on it, and Jesus says, you want to act like your, your children of the Father, be perfect, 
Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. That's what he teaches us. Paul says love, loving our neighbor, fulfills the law. Again, Jesus said this exact statement too in response to a question. Someone says, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? This is what Jesus says. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. That's the first and the greatest commandment. A second, equally important, love your neighbor who is like yourself. That's the literal translation of that. Love your neighbor who is like yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. In other words, if you want to take every commandment of Scripture and just boil it down and summarize it, love the Lord your God with everything and love people. You do those two things. You make that your focus of every day and you'll come to find you're actually doing all the other laws. But the problem is we don't know what that means and so then there's all these other laws that teach us what that means. In fact, Paul even gives us some of them. He gives us four specific ones. Don't commit adultery. If you commit adultery, you're not loving your spouse. Oh, I still love my spouse. No! Because love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is an action. It's a verb. It's the word agape in the scripture. It's a verb. Not a noun, not a feeling, not an idea. And so if I commit adultery, I am not loving my spouse or the other person that I'm committing adultery with. That is not love. That's the antithesis of love. Do not murder. In fact, the Bible says don't even hate your brother or you're guilty of murder. Don't steal. Don't covet. Don't want what your neighbor has. Because if we do these things, we're not loving our neighbor. Those are four specific things. That doesn't mean there's more commandments, but that's what love looks like. Paul even says this way, love does no wrong to others. That's his definition of love in this passage, in these three verses. Love does no wrong to others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, maybe at your wedding, you know, this, this is not just a nice poem to read there. This is love. Not just for our spouse, but for all human beings. Love is patient and kind. Anybody patient by nature? God bless you. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Ever. The situation does not warrant me to be rude because love is not rude. God had every right to be rude to me. And what did he do? He sent me his best. It's not demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice. It doesn't rejoice when our enemies fail. We studied this morning in Sunday school that David didn't rejoice at the death of King Saul who tried to pin him to a wall and kill him, made him leave his family, made him leave his own country and go live as a foreigner somewhere. He wept and fasted and prayed at the death of King Saul. That's love. It keeps no record of wrong. 
It does not rejoice at injustice. It rejoices when truth wins out. Love never gives up. Are you grateful that God's love has never given up on you? Now, has our love ever given up on people? Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful, and it always endures through every circumstance. And Paul, right after this, the verse we looked at last week in Romans chapter 13, verse 11, look at what he says. He says, uh, he doesn't say that. Can you put it on Romans 13, 11? <laughs> he says, this is all the more urgent. You know how late it is. Time is running out. He talks about loving our neighbors, loving being the fulfillment of the law, and then he says, this is all the more urgent. Why does he say that? Because look at what it says in Matthew 24. Many in the last days will turn away from me, Jesus said, and they will betray and hate each other. You know, we hear a lot about the last days and the signs of the times. Pay attention to the words of Jesus. Many will turn away from me. Christians, churchgoers, church people will turn away from me. They will betray and hate each other. Why does Paul say it's all the more urgent that you love? Because in the last days, one of the schemes and strategies of the enemy is to get us to hate. And the enemy will stir the pot so much to get us to hate one another, to get us to hate the very people we're trying to reach. We get so offended for God. And yet God never got offended. He sent his son in our, to die in our place. He never counted my sin against me. He's not counting my sin against me. He's not counting his sin against the world. Jesus has come to intervene. No longer counting men's sins against them, he says. Does the world know that? Paul says it's more important because many false prophets will appear. They're going to deceive many people. Sin will be rampant anywhere. By the way, false prophets won't just teach that you can sin and it's okay. False prophets will be just like the Pharisees that hated the sinners and didn't understand why Jesus ate with them. Okay? So there'll be false prophets on both sides of the aisle, if you will. Sin will be rampant anywhere, and the agape, the love of many, will grow cold. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Second Timothy, Paul says it this way, in the last days there's going to be difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. He's writing to the church. This isn't the world is going to be like this. This is the agape. And the only people that got agape are the people in God. The world ain't got agape because God is agape and if you don't have God, you don't have agape, you don't have his love. So we know Paul isn't talking about the world. He's talking about the church. People will love only themselves and their money. They're gonna be boastful, proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving, unforgiven, slander others, have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than love God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power to make them godly. Stay away from people like that. 
Now, here's the thing. The enemy is not going to come to our door and give us this ugly list. A good Christian, you're going to be like, no way, I'm not going to do that stuff. But he comes in in subtle ways, stirs the pot, gets us to slander a little bit here, gets us to gossip a little bit here, gets us to cut someone a little bit here, gets us to give this guy a little bit of a a piece of our mind. And then all of a sudden, we're living a lifestyle that is exactly like 2 Timothy chapter 3, but we don't even know it. Because the Bible says if you hear the word and you don't obey it, you deceive yourself. You become religious and you think you're godly, but you're not. And if the Bible says don't slander and we think it's okay to slander in this instance, you're deceiving yourself. That's what the scripture teaches and that's why the apostle Paul says this is urgent. You know what? If you want to avoid this enemy's scheme, how do we overcome evil? Good. That's what he says in Romans chapter 13. How do we overcome the enemy's strategy to make us hate people? Be more fervent in our love. That's how we overcome. That's how we keep ourselves from going into this slippery slope. Look at what he says in 1 John chapter 3. John says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. We should love, every time we see that word love now, it's agape. Okay, there are other words for love in the scripture, but all of these are agape. That's that action word. Let us love one another. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves we've passed from death to life. Now here, it doesn't mean you have any warm, fuzzy feelings towards anybody. No one can detect your warm, fuzzy feelings. And so if you are acting in love towards people, that's what we see and it proves you're a a child of God. Say, well, I I sometimes feel phony because I really don't have any, sometimes I'm annoyed by that person, but I feel phony acting that way. That's what you're supposed to do. You act in love no matter what you feel. Since when did we start doing what we felt like doing? We live by faith, not by feeling. And you start acting in love toward people, here's what you'll find. Your emotions eventually will catch up to you. But if you sit around and are just critical and nitpicky about people, don't be surprised if you don't have warm, fuzzy feelings. Go figure. If all you do is sit at home and think about your spouse and all of the things they don't do and the ways that you would change them if you could, you're not gonna feel in love. Duh. That's what the scripture teaches. Start thinking about the positive qualities in their lives. They've got some. And here's the thing we forget. You've got just as many flaws, if not more, than them. Some of you are going to need counseling after that. (laughs) We know what real love is. Wait, I can't skip this word. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is a murderer at heart. Again, it's not the feeling. Hatred is just, I'm either ignoring you or not doing things towards you or slandering you. That's hatred. I mean, none of us would ever say we hate anyone. I don't hate them. But if our actions are to tear them down, that's hate biblically. Okay? And so we're murdering them in our hearts. We know what real love is because Jesus gave his life for us. We ought to give our lives for our brothers and sisters. If you have money to live well and see a brother or sister in need, but show no compassion. How can God's love be in you? Those are tough words. Dear children, let's not merely say we love each other. Let us show the truth 
by our actions. 1 John 4, 7, dear friends, let us continue to love one another. Love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, does not act in love, does not know God because God is love. John just says this. He's like, if you're not acting in love towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, towards sinners, you don't know God because God is love. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. And if you come to know him, you will love too. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so we'd have eternal life. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, surely we ought to love each other. If God loved us that much, surely we ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us, and his love is brought to full expression in us. Why doesn't our world see the need for a savior? Why doesn't our world see God? Could it be a lack of love in our lives? Because they can't see him, but as they see genuine love in us, they will see him. Jesus said it in John chapter 13, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other just as I've loved you, love each other, for love, your love for one another will prove to the world you are my disciples. The length, of, the size of your Bible will not prove you are my disciple. The number of scripture references you have memorized will not prove you're my disciples. Your church attendance will not prove you're my disciple. What proves we are his disciples is that we love one another. Because love is patient and kind. It's not rude. It does not envy. It's not boast. It's not proud. It never gives up. Are you catching it? All right. I promise I'm almost done. So everyone take a deep breath. We've got one more passage of scripture to look at, Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus starts, he's doing a teaching. He starts the chapter by talking about offense. We're going to get offended at each other. I mean, he even teaches us in Luke chapter 17 that it's impossible to live without being offended. Jesus, where's your faith? <laughs> he just knows. It's impossible for you to live with other human beings, go to church with them, work with them, and never be offended. It's gonna happen. The opportunity to become offended at each other is gonna come. Do you know why? Because we all have flaws. Every one of us. And we're working out our salvation and we're becoming more like Jesus, but it doesn't happen fast enough, trust me. Amen? And so because of that, the opportunity for offense is gonna come, but Jesus teaches us how to handle it. You know what? You got a problem with a brother, go to them. Sit down together and work it out. It doesn't say go to your brother and nitpick and point out all of the ways that your brother is arrogant, rude, wrong. Be reconciled to your brother. You sit down with them and you say, well, you know what, something has come between us and I, I don't want it to be there. I wanna be in a relationship with you and I don't want this there. That's reconciliation. What steps can we take to, to get through this? Now, Jesus said, sometimes you're gonna sit down one-on-one, -on -one, it's not gonna happen. Go get someone else. Go get someone, not your best friend. Go get someone that you both trust and love and know, hey, Jesus oozes out of that person. Let's ask them to help us. Sit down at a table, all three of you. Here's what's come between us. What do we do? Sometimes that's not gonna work. So then you involve the church. See, we don't do this. 
When we get upset, we tell someone else, and well, and you should be upset. And then right after that, Jesus says, if you ask for anything, if two or three of you agree together and ask for anything in my name, I'm going to do it. And you know what we do? We make that into a little picture that we hang on our wall and think if I just hold hands with one other person and we come together and we pray a prayer and end it with in Jesus' name, it's gonna be done. But Jesus is talking about the power of unity and when you learn to fight through your offenses and you stick together, there is gonna be such power released on the church that you're gonna ask for things and it's gonna get done. You're coming together in my name. Meaning, we're going to put this pettiness aside. We're going to fight to be reconciled because Jesus said, I owe you a debt. And I'm going to pay it. I'm going to make good on that debt. So we're going to fight through this thing and we're going to make it work. Now, sometimes people won't make it work and they walk away. In fact, at the end of that, Jesus says, tell them to get out of the church. If they won't listen to what the church says, say, go, go. What? Because if you let them stay in the church, they just become deceived. You let people stay in sin and think it's okay, they become deceived. If we don't confront these things the right way in love, we really don't love them. Because they're going to end up in hell apart from God, thinking they were serving him, and he'll say, I never knew you. You practice lawlessness, law unto your so, so then Jesus tells a parable, and this is what he says. The kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date. Must not have been a good king if he, you know, his accounts weren't up to date. His servants had borrowed money from him, and in the process, one of his debtors were brought in who owed millions of dollars. He couldn't pay. So his master ordered that he be sold, and his wife, and his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt. But the man fell down before him, and he begged him, be patient with me, and I will pay it all. Look at this. The master was filled with pity for him. He released him and forgave the debt. I'll pay it back. And the master doesn't say, okay, I'll give you 30. He says, you know what, I'm just going to forgive it. Done. But when the man left the king, he went and found a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. Anybody think a few thousand dollars is not a lot of money? Rats. <laughs> a few thousand dollars is still significant. I mean, it's not a million, but it's significant. He grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. He left the king forgiven millions and walked out into the street and found someone who owed him a couple thousand and this is what he did. His fellow servant fell down before him and begged for a little more time. Be patient with me and I'll pay it, he pleaded, but his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested and put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that happened and the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, you evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he paid his entire debt, which, by the way, never can happen. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from the heart. That debt is the millions of dollars. No possible way to pay it. 
we didn't even plead with him to forgive us. He did it on his own. He came, he died while we were his enemies, and he offered forgiveness to all of us. There's not one of us in this room that has the right to hold anything against anyone. But we lack mercy sometimes because we get short-sighted and we forget we're flawed too. And so somebody mishandles a situation or they do something that's out of character for them or out of, and we, we slander them, we talk about them. Why, why do you think so-and-so did that? I don't know. Do you know anything? I don't know. I just, I, they, that's how they always act. They just, you know, they do that. That's grabbing them by the throat and demanding them to pay. Pay up. You owe me. How dare you act like that? And here's the thing. Some of those things genuinely hurt. It's a $1,000 debt. It's a big deal. And the wounds are there and they're fresh and they're not just gonna go away just because I preach this sermon. And we, but when I understand what I've been forgiven of, I sit at a table and say, Lord, you have got to get me to help me work through this because I cannot hold this against them. I cannot let their flaws and weaknesses become so great in my eyes that I hold a debt against them. I won't finger point, I won't complain, I won't criticize. I'll be like the Samaritan and I'll love my enemies. Jesus taught over and over and over again this phrase to the, to the, the religious people, the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees didn't understand why does Jesus eat with such scum? Tax collectors, sinners, what's he doing? What is Jesus eating with homosexuals for? What is Jesus doing? I mean, does he know that person's lifestyle? Why is he eating supper with them? Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. I've come to call not those who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. Do we stop calling sin, sin? No, sin is sin. But the world pretty much knows what we're against. Do they know what we're for? Because my Bible says God is for us. He's not counting your sins against you. You're a sinner, but he's not counting that against you. Let me tell you the good news. He paved a way for you to be brand new. All you gotta do is get in the car and turn the ignition. So Paul says stay in debt. Stay in debt. Here's the thing. There's a plan in the last days for the enemy and he wants to stir the pot in your life. He wants to get you annoyed with your family, with your friends, with church folk, with everybody, with the world, with the president, with all of the people in the media. He wants you annoyed. He wants you hate. He'll stir the pot. He'll stir the pot. He'll get you offended. He'll get you righteously offended. And if we're going to stay in debt, we've got to be excessive in love and excessive in mercy. The same way he's treated us, we have got to treat them. There's a way to confront, and there, the scripture's clear on it, but can I tell you why confrontation doesn't usually go well? Because we haven't loved before the confrontation. We just kind of step in because we saw something and we're annoyed with it and we're gonna just fix it and we're gonna give that person a piece of our mind and then we just wonder, God, why doesn't your word work? But here's the thing. Here's the two commandments. Love God and love people. 
And so, Father, that's our desire. We know that you loved us when we didn't deserve it, when we didn't earn it. God, we did it. You loved us while we were your enemies. And we have been guilty of not taking the debt that we owe you and allowing you to apply it to the lives of people around us. We've been rude. We've been short. God, we, we've slandered. We've gossiped. We have not believed the best. We've allowed the scheme and the strategy of the enemy to take root in our lives. And so, Father, today we want you to open our eyes. We want to stay in debt. We want to make payments on that debt that we owe you by loving others, by acting towards them the way that you've acted towards us so that they're able to see your love, they're able to see who you are in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that today you would be very specific in our lives. Show us the, the relationships that we need to work on. Show us the, the things that need to be cut off in our lives. Holy Spirit, we've, we've become desensitized to your voice in the areas of slander and gossip. And we need you to, to restore that. Help us to hear your voice. And when we, we start tearing others down, help us to, to put a guard over our lips. Help us to only speak what's gonna build others up. And even if that requires a word that's difficult for them to hear, help us to, to bathe it in love, to speak the truth only in love. Help us to establish relationships with one another where we can do that without offending one another. Help us to understand the protection each of us needs from one another. Father, help this word to take root in our hearts today. Help it to transform our lives and change the way that we think. If you're here today and you would say, if you'd just be honest enough to say, you know what? That's me. I've, I know that I have a debt that I need to pay and I have been very poor at paying that debt to the other people. I have mistreated and today I'm just gonna acknowledge before the Lord, that's me. If you can be honest enough to say that, would you just slip up your hand and say, hey, that's me. God, that's me. I want you... God, to forgive me and help me. And so, Father, you see our hands today. We recognize our sin, our mistake, and we need to turn from that. And so, Father, give us the grace today as we come before your throne and we admit our sin, give us the grace now that we need to turn from that. Holy Spirit, empower us to live out your will, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. These altars are always open to you if you want to spend some time in prayer.
And uh, if you need to be dismissed, just do it quietly. Let this place be a place of prayer for those that need prayer or want to spend some time in prayer. God bless you as you go.